While many of us pray, we don't know a lot about the way to pray effectively. Today, we'll be learning about dealing with doubts that prevent us from praying. This message is the first in the series, The Way to Pray. The message is entitled, Be a Doubt Buster, Part 1. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. I want to welcome you this weekend to Church of the Redeemer as we're studying God's Word together. Welcome all those from the Gaithersburg, Frederick, and online campus as we're getting ready to study God's Word. We started last weekend a series of messages talking about how to pray. What do we need to know about prayer? And we began talking about a very important part of prayer that is overcoming doubts because you and I will never be able to pray effectively until we learn how to deal with our doubts. And so I want to continue that theme this weekend and talk about how do we continue to overcome and conquer doubts in our lives. Last weekend we talked about the fact that to conquer doubt you have to develop a simple faith, that faith is not a complicated thing, it's something that actually is very simple, doesn't require huge amounts to pray, that as we pray with a simplicity, just like a little child coming before our Father. We talked about how we should never allow our doubts to keep us from praying, that even when we're doubting, we still come to God and we still ask Him. We also talked about the fact that we have to know something about how God answers prayer, that sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no, and sometimes God says wait. And so knowing the frame of reference and how God answers prayer is very helpful to us when we pray. Now, this weekend, I'm going to share with you four more principles that will help you to be what I'm calling a doubt buster. Because that's what Jesus was. When Jesus came into his earthly ministry, one of the things that he did is that he found people who were struggling with their faith, and he always lifted their faith to another level. He busted doubt, we might say. He burst through that resistance to believe, that lack of confidence in approaching God. And he wants to continue to do that in your life and my life, especially as we're going through this series, helping us to understand how to get past our doubts. So here's our first thing for this weekend. If you and I want to go past doubt, become a doubt buster, then you and I need to understand something about the superiority of God's wisdom and God's plans. That is, trust the superiority of God's wisdom and trust the superiority of God's plans. Now, theologians, when they talk about God, use lots of different terms to describe His nature, His character, who He is. And one of those words is the word transcendent. Now, don't let that word scare you. Transcendent is a word that simply means it goes beyond the ordinary limits. It goes beyond uh, or exceeds, we might say, anything that our minds can imagine. So when we talk about God, we talk about the fact that He is the transcendent God, that God is so far above and beyond us that we could never comprehend Him with our finite minds. He's the infinite God. I'm not sure if you've had the experience before like I have, but been around someone maybe that's just absolutely brilliant. And they start talking about their area of expertise. And as I listen to them and kind of try to track with the conversation before long, it's like I've got a headache just trying to stay up with them because they're so far advanced in their knowledge, their understanding. And I'm just back sort of barely trailing along uh, to grasp some little bit of the concept. Well, that's how God is. God is this amazing God. The Bible tells us that God is God alone. He is the transcendent God. Let me take you to the Bible. Let's take a look at what the Scripture says to us about the transcendency, the greatness, the, the set-apartness of God. Psalm chapter 86, verse number 10. Listen as I read this. For you, talking about God, are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, this great book of Revelation takes us into the heavenly realms. It allows us to see what's going on in heaven right now. 
And one of the issues that came up in heaven was who would be worthy to open up the scrolls of what would happen in the last days. And they were concerned about who would be worthy enough to establish the judgments coming upon the world in the last days and to proclaim them. And I want to take you to Revelation chapter 5, the first 10 verses. Uh, These are a number of verses, but I think they'll be valuable for us to read together. And uh, listen to what the Scripture says about the worthiness, the transcendency of God, the transcendency of Jesus our Savior. John the Apostle writes and says then, he's in this revelational moment, he's having this experience with God, he's caught up in the Spirit, the Bible says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's of course referring to Jesus, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, and here's the question, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? So again, heaven is concerned about who's worthy to do this. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So no one was found to be worthy. Then uh, the, 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 the writer here, John, says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, that's again Jesus, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, notice this, they fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. And here's the song they sang. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. See, the moment there was the discovery of who Jesus was, his transcendency, his greatness, everybody celebrated. A song broke out in heaven. Romans chapter 16, verse 27. I'm going to ask you to read this one together with me. Very short little verse, but a very powerful verse. So let's all read in concert together. Gaithersburg, Frederick, even if you're online, why don't you read it out loud loud with us? It says this, To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And notice what the Bible says about God. It says that He is wise but he is also the only wise God. That is, there is no one like him. He is the one that we can trust as the superior point of wisdom. And so when you and I are praying, one of the things that helps us to understand uh, God and to press past our our doubts is to understand that God is the all-wise God, that you cannot, I cannot grasp his wisdom. And that's why Very important here. That's why many of the things that he does, we won't understand. That's why when you're praying, you might have some doubts about things, but you have doubts because you can't grasp the reality of how God views and works in the world because of his greatness, his transcendency. In fact, there are many times, I've experienced this in my own life, when when I felt like I was receiving the opposite to one of my prayers. I was praying one thing, and it seemed like something else was happening. 
But in reality, God, in his wisdom, was working in a mighty way, and I could only see it later or understand it later. In fact, even some of those things you'll only understand in eternity. It's because we're praying to an all-wise God. We We are finite beings approaching an infinite God. And so because of that gap, there'll be many things we will not understand. In fact, let me take you to an illustration of this. In the crucifixion of Jesus, do you know that when, when Jesus was crucified, the wisdom of the world was to crucify Jesus. The wisdom, in fact, of the world of darkness was to crucify Jesus. Satan thought that he had won when he crucified Jesus. That is, he thought he had accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. But in reality, what occurred was this. Incredible, the wisdom of God. What happened was, in the crucifixion of Jesus, while Satan thought he was winning, actually what happened was Satan sealed his own doom in that moment because God's wisdom trumped his wisdom. Notice, if you will, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. No, we declare, notice this, God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers, that's the spiritual rulers of darkness, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So again, you see that the wisdom of God always trumps the wisdom of man or even the wisdom or the, the, the concepts or the, the plans, the schemes, we might say, of the realms of darkness. Now, What does this have to do with prayer? It has everything to do with prayer. What does it have to do with doubt? It has everything to do with doubt. It brings us to this confidence that when you and I are praying, even though we are praying with finite understanding, with finite wisdom, we do the best we can to pray the things we know that we should pray or we think we should pray, but ultimately we can trust the superiority of God's wisdom and God's answers. Paul says it this way in one of the most familiar and powerful passages of the New Testament that gives us great comfort about our prayer lives. Romans 8, notice verses 26 through 28. Powerful, powerful words. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So it's talking about a weakness that we have. What is this weakness? Here it is. We don't know what we ought to pray for. Have you ever felt that way before? You you wanted to pray and you didn't even quite know what to pray for. But the scripture says the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans and and, and he searches our heart and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God and we know that it's because the Spirit is praying in us and through us we can know that in all things Things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now, folks, let me tell you something that is a doubt buster. To understand that even when we're praying in our finite wisdom, there's the Spirit of God that is praying along with us and through us, asking in accordance with God's will. And even though we may not know exactly what to ask for, He always knows what to ask for. And we can trust the superiority of God's wisdom and the superiority of God's plan. So let that reality of who God is, His wisdom, help you to press through some doubt in your prayer life. Here's our second thing. If you want to overcome doubt, you have to record and recall God's answers. Record and recall God's answers. Have you ever noticed something, human tendency, that we all have the tendency to actually remember the things we ought to forget and to forget the things we ought to remember? That's just the way life is. 
those things that are painful and hurtful to us, we have this incredible capacity to hold on to those memories while some of the great blessings in our life, the wonderful things that have occurred in life, we have a tendency to sort of forget about them and let them slip to the side. And all that really needs to be reversed. That if we're going to grow in our spiritual journey, especially in the realm of our prayer life, we have to learn to forget some things, but we also have to learn to remember some things. And the Bible is very, very clear about this call for us to remember, to remember the works of God in our lives. Let me read for you Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Do not be afraid of them. Again, God's talking about some of the enemies of Israel. He said, do not be afraid of them. Remember well. Notice that, remember well. Put this in your your memory bank and, and keep it in the forefront of your mind. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. He says, remember back when God did this for you. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out. Notice this, the Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Now here's where God says, I'm going to link you to a past memory of what I did and I want you to bring that past memory into your present circumstance. As something happened in the past where I showed up in your life and I did something for you and you're facing something right now and you're going to face some things in the future and here's what I want you to do. Anytime you face another impossibility that's similar to that, look back on that for the encouragement you need in your life today. First Chronicles chapter 16, verses 7 through 12. Listen to this very powerful passage as well. That day David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. Give praise. Praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Here it is. Remember. Everybody say that word with me. Remember. Remember. Once again, remember. Remember the wonders he has done. Remember what else? His miracles. Remember what else? The judgments he has proclaimed. I'm going to ask you to read with me Psalm chapter 77, verse number 11. Let's all read it together loud and loudly again. All those in Gaithersburg, Frederick, online. Here we go. Let's read. I will remember. Notice there's a statement there of of, of will, choice. I, together, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. Are you noticing a theme here? The theme is remember, remember, remember. Remember what, Pastor? Well, God says, remember the wonders God's done in your life. The Bible says, remember the miracles he's accomplished in your life. Remember the judgments he's proclaimed, the times that he has shown up in your life and done incredible things. Now, as Christians, we celebrate something called the Lord's Table or Communion. And different churches celebrate it in, in a different uh, pattern of frequency. We celebrate it generally once a month here at our church and then uh, reg- other times during the year on special occasions. And the, the whole idea of communion, part of the idea of communion is it refreshes our relationship with God. It's also called to put us in a place of remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. So every time we come to the communion table, what that is, it's a call for us to remember who Jesus is and what he did for us. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 25. 
For I, Paul writes this about communion, about the Lord's table. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, notice this, in remembrance. In what? In remembrance of me. That is, when you do this, Bring who I am into your memory. Bring what I did for you into the focus of your memory. Notice it says now in verse 25, in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this, that is drink of this. Do this whenever you drink of this cup. Again, in remembrance of me. So even communion is designed to be something that brings us back to a place of remembering who God is, what he's done in our lives. And that's a doubt buster in your life. That every time you go back and remember who God is, what he's done, his miracles, how he's shown up in the past, it helps break through through the doubts in your present. It's a great story. I'm not going to read it for you. You can read it on your own in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. It's a great story of how God showed up for Israel, and, and they learned a lesson about memories. It was a time when Israel was, was once again facing uh, an enemy called the Philistines. They continually faced them. They were sort of the nemesis of Israel during their historical experience, Old Testament records. And what we find is that uh, the Philistines were very threatening against the Israelites at this point in time. And Israel was afraid. They didn't know what they were going to do. And the Bible says that as they offered up, as Samuel offered up some sacrifices to God, trusting in God, looking to God, that God thundered down from heaven. And the thundering of God there in that situation actually sort of befuddled all of the Philistines and messed with, messed with them. It kind of disoriented them, and they didn't know what was going on. And what it did was it allowed the Israelites to have a moment, an opportunity to rout them, to destroy them, and to send them fleeing and to, to actually defeat their enemy. And after that happened, it happened at a place called Mizpah. After that happened, the, the, Samuel, along with the Israelites, made a choice to do something. Samuel set up a stone, and he set it up at a particular place where that battle had been fought. And he gave that stone a name. He gave that place a name. And the name was Ebenezer. Say it with me, Ebenezer. And that word, that name, Ebenezer, means thus far, or to this point, the Lord has helped us. And that moment when Samuel set up that stone and said, hey guys, look, this stone that's right here, this is a stone and we're going to name it Ebenezer. And every time we walk past this stone and we say, hey, there's Ebenezer, this is a moment that we can recall that God helped us. God showed up in our lives and did something for us. It helps us to have encouragement for our present and for our future. So can I ask you today, think about it in your own life. Maybe you're battling with some doubt about some of your prayers being answered. You're, you're concerned about whether God is hearing or God's responding. Let me tell you today, understand something, that you can look back on your life. And there have been times that you've prayed and God has come through for you. There have been times you've asked God to intervene in your life and he did intervene. Maybe it wasn't exactly how you expected it. Maybe it was not exactly at the moment you expected it. But if you will look back, I will assure you that there are some points of faithfulness where God has showed up in your life and done some incredible things. You have some Ebenezer's in your life, places where the Lord has helped you. Let that, let those experiences be something that you take with you into today and into your tomorrows to help you to press past whatever doubt might come your way. Here's our third principle this weekend. Number three, how do we become doubt busters? We have to focus, here's a key, focus on the promises of God 
and the God of the promises. Very important. The promises of God along with the God of the promises. Remembrances, where do they take you? Remembrances take you to the past, correct? Promises take you toward your future. Important to grasp that when you remember you're going toward the past, when you when you gain, take, take hold of a promise, it is, it is moving you towards something that is ahead, is a hope for your present and for your future. And one of the best ways to deal with doubt in your life is to actually get a hold of the promises of God. What does God say in his word? What does the Bible say about your life? What does the Bible say about you? What does the Bible say about your relationships? What does the Bible say about your children? What does the Bible say about your finances? What does the Bible say about the work of your hands? What does the Bible say just in general about life and the promises of God to you? Do you know God's promises? And the key to the promises is to realize there's a God that backs up those promises. Just recently, I was, um, I was thinking about something that was kind of a pressure on my life, and I found myself feeling overwhelmed and, 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 and worried and anxious about something that uh, I was having to carry as a responsibility and a burden. It was in my heart. And as I began to just be weighed down with that, I was walking and doing some praying while I was walking. And in the midst of that walking prayer time, something occurred. God just dropped in my mind a story from the Old Testament. It was a story that's found in the book of 2 Kings. It was a story about the time when Elisha went to a widow that didn't have anything at all. She was, her husband had died and she had been left with nothing. She had a lot of debt, had basically nothing to, to handle the debt with. And so she's crying out to Elisha for help and Elisha told her something. Elisha said, go get the jars in your house and you've got a little bit of oil. Start barring all the jars you can and start pouring the oil and God's gonna meet your need. And there was a miracle that happened for that widow and the pouring of oil that there was enough oil generated miraculously that it paid off her debts and it settled her for the future. And when I remembered that story, in that story came a promise for me. I came alive on the inside. Something said, God, you know, if you did it for that widow, you'll do it for me. If you promise to do something for her in that situation, I can believe that you'll take care of this situation for me. Now, what turned me around in that moment? You know what turned me around? It wasn't that I sort of got a hold of myself and slapped myself around a bit and sort of got myself into, into the right senses. No, what got turned me around was the promise of God got a hold of me. The reality that God gives us promises and he backs those promises up. Now, read with me a few passages here. Let's read Psalm 119, verse number 140. 140, Psalm 119, a very lengthy psalm. It's a psalm actually about the word of God, but read, if you will, verse 140 aloud and loudly together. Here we go. Your promises have been thoroughly tested and your servant loves them. David said, I've learned something about your promises, God. They are tested. They work. Man, I tell you, we put them to the test, and every time they come through. And because of that, David said, I love your promises. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Read with me. Paul writes these words and says, For, here we go, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are, what's the word there? 
Yes, circle it. They are yes, circle it, yes, in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. No matter how many promises, and boy, this book called the Bible is full of promises. And the Bible says that every promise in that book is yours. In Jesus Christ, he said, yes, that promise is yours. And all we have to do is come along and take that promise and say, amen, to the promise God has already said yes to. And that's called claiming the promises of God. It's how you fight your battles. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. I'll read this for you. I just want to make a quick point about this passage because I want you to see the element of the promises of God in your spiritual warfare, how it helps you to overcome doubt. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. Now, remember, faith is the opposite of doubt, one of the opposites of doubt. And so if you're going to get rid of doubt, you have to have faith. If you're going to have faith, you have to have, be shielded with faith. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and what's the next word there? Pray. Notice this. This is all about prayer. If you're going to pray effectively, you need to be shielded with faith, that is faith in the promises of God, and have in your hand that sword called the Word of God. And all of those, these points of, 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 of armor are designed partially for us to move forward in prayer and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So when doubt comes your way, answer your doubt with God's promises. Know that the God who gave the promises will never, does never, has never lied and will never lie. He's the God of truth. And this brings us to our last point this weekend. Very important point again in overcoming doubt. How do you become a doubt buster? You live in simple obedience. Now last weekend I talked to you about simple faith. This weekend we're talking about simple obedience. They go together. One of the best ways, one of the best ways to conquer, to combat doubt in your life is to simply do what God's Word says to do. You got to get this, to just do it, not to argue about it in your mind, not to say, do I believe this or not, but I'm going to show that I believe by doing what the Bible says. Obedience is a powerful force against doubt. It is one of the major ways that we actually stand up against doubt. See, real faith is not a feeling. Real faith is not an emotion. Real faith is an action. We know that we have faith by the things that we do, by the actions that we take in our lives. See, a lot of people can talk faith and say all the right things about faith, but real faith is not about some word, some verbosity related to your, quote, spiritual life, but it's all about you walking that walk. Faith is an action. In fact, the Bible says that faith is proven by our deeds and by our action. So how do you know that you have faith in someone? How do you know you have faith in somebody's words? Well, you do what they say. You follow through with, with what they're asking you to do or what the request might be. The same happens with God. Now, let's, let's go into the parenting realm just for a moment. You know that every time a child obeys a parent, that child is saying to that parent, I believe you, I trust you. Oh, those words may not be coming out of their mouth. In fact, opposite words sometimes may even be coming out of their mouths. But when they actually obey, their obedience 
is a more powerful statement of their faith than, than, their, than their words are. Their obedience declares, no matter what the child might be saying about their parents' instructions, the obedience is what really matters. See, if you tell a child, don't run out into that busy street out there, and they make the choice to, run, to not run out, they're obeying you, then it doesn't matter if they agree with you or disagree with you. What mattered was they obeyed you. And their obedience, again, was a statement of what they believed. They trusted you. Now, there's a great story in the Old Testament I'm going to draw your attention to. I'm not going to read this again, but I'm going to ask you to maybe take some time this week and read it on your own, 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. Let me tell you the story very quickly here as we're wrapping everything up this weekend. There's a man in the Bible by the name of Naaman, and Naaman was not an Israelite. He did not have a relationship, a covenant relationship with God. He belonged to a different nation, worshipped idols, but he contracted. He was a very highly placed man, a commander of the uh, Syrian army. He was a very highly placed, very accomplished man, but he contracted a terrible disease. He contracted uh, the fatal disease of leprosy. Back in those days, there was no cure for leprosy. And the kind of condition that Naaman had, nothing, nothing, nothing could fix him. And so here's this man with a promising future, a man that was greatly accomplished, a man who had already done a lot of wonderful things with his life and was looking forward to a lot more stuff for his life, and he found himself in a situation of leprosy. He didn't know what to do because there was no answer. There were no doctors in his country that could help him. There were no cures, but there was a, a little Israelite girl that was living as a servant in his household there in Syria, and this Israelite girl told Naaman's wife about a prophet back in Israel named Elisha, and, he, and she said, you know what your, your husband should do is he should go and visit Elisha, the man of God, because Elisha knows God. Elisha can connect Naaman to the healing power of God, and so that instruction was given, and Naaman, being a desperate man, made the journey down into Israel and found Elisha. Now, when he found Elisha, he had a lot of expectations, a lot of wrong expectations about what was going to happen, but Elisha actually gave him some instructions through his servant. Elisha said, here's what I want you to do, Naaman. If you want to be healed, you need to go to the Jordan River and dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Now, Naaman did not want to do this. He did not like the idea, and Naaman doubted that's important. He doubted that this was going to make any difference in his life at all. And in fact, his initial response was, I'm not going to do this. There's some rivers back in my country that are a lot better than the Jordan, that old muddy Jordan River. Why would I go there? I'll go back to the great rivers of my own homeland. If I've got a dip in a river, I should choose my own river. But instead, his servants appealed to him and prevailed over him. And ultimately, Naaman made the decision to actually go to the Jordan. Now, here's what I want you to get. When he went to the Jordan to dip himself, Naaman didn't believe at all anything was going to happen. I would say his faith was minimal at best, if he had any faith at all. Very limited faith, if any at all, that anything was going to happen. He went there under protest. He went there just to kind of get it out of the way and do what the prophet told him to do. And so he dipped himself, and as he dipped himself the first time and came up, nothing happened. Five more times he dipped himself down, came up, nothing happened. I can only imagine that during those six dips that Naaman's faith, instead of going up, continued to go down. If he had any at all, it was now at rock bottom. He thought, my goodness, God's not going to meet me. What is this all about? But he followed through, and he did what the prophet told him to do. He dipped the seventh time 
And the Bible says that when he dipped seven times, when he came up out of the water the seventh time, you've got to get this, it was only the last time when the healing happened. When he came up, the Bible says that his flesh was restored and cleansed like that of a young boy. A miracle happened. Now, did the miracle happen because Naaman had a whole bunch of faith? No. Did the miracle happen because Naaman was some phenomenal person, some phenomenal man of God? No. The miracle happened in Naaman's life because of one thing, simple obedience. Even under protest, he made the choice to obey God. He demonstrated some level of faith. Although the feeling, the emotion wasn't there, he demonstrated some level of faith and that level of faith was enough through his obedience to bring him to that place of, of, of miracle work, the miracle working power of God. So when you are doubting, one of the best things that you can do is to exercise simple obedience to God. So what have we learned about doubt busters? You need to develop a simple faith. It's not complicated. You need to never, ever allow your, your doubt to keep you from praying. If you doubt, keep on praying. You need to understand that God answers differently. He answers yes and no. And sometimes he says, wait. We have to trust the superiority of God's wisdom and God's plans. He's the transcendent God. Even when we don't understand the answers, our finite understanding is limited. But God is the infinite God of wisdom, the only wise God. We need to make sure that we've re recorded and recall the, the, the events of God's answers in our life, just like the Ebenezer was for Israel, that we have our own Ebenezers. We need to focus on the promises of God and re realize there's a God that backs up the promises. And then to make the choice that God, even when I don't necessarily feel a lot of faith, in my prayers, my, my determination is I'm going to live out in a simple obedience to you. If you'll do these seven things, the three we talked about last weekend, the four we've talked about this weekend, I assure you it will set you up to have the kind of faith that will prepare you for a powerful prayer life. And beginning this next weekend, we're going to move forward into this series talking about the way to pray and learn some valuable lessons after we've gotten some of that doubt out of the way. Would you join me right now as we pray together? Let's all pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we've had this weekend to study your word. We're so grateful that you've given us the word of God and so grateful that you you help us with our doubts, God. Sometimes we don't always have the kind of uh, roaring faith that we'd like to have, but God, we thank you that even in those moments that you still meet us, that you still come and help us. I pray that each one of us would be doubt busters. I pray you'd help us to, to rise up against the doubts that come our way and to press past them so that we can become people who learn to pray with confidence in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Hi, I'm Pastor Dale O'Shields. I want to thank you for listening to our broadcast of Practical Living. I trust it was a blessing to you, and I trust that you're growing in your spiritual journey. Or perhaps you've never even started your spiritual journey, and today this is your opportunity to make a decision to move forward, getting to know Jesus Christ, letting Him have control of your life. See, the Bible says of Jesus that He stands at the door and knocks, and if anyone will hear His voice, you can open that door and let Him in. And if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, today is the day that you need to do it. In fact, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. If you'll pray this prayer sincerely with all your heart, mean it with all your heart, Jesus Christ will come into your life. Repeat this prayer after me. Say these words. Say, Jesus, I know that I am a sinner and I'm sorry for all the things I've done wrong in my life. I believe in you. I believe you are God's Son, the Savior of the world, that you died for me and rose again. Just simply tell Jesus, I believe in you. Now open up your heart and say, Jesus, come into my life. By faith, I receive you as my Savior, my Lord, in Jesus' name.
Now, if you prayed that prayer with me just then, sincerely, I want you to know something. Jesus heard it, and He saved you. You're a new creation in Christ. You get a brand new start in your journey with God. But now you have to grow. You have to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus every day. And so we want to help you get started. And we have some resources available on our website that will do so called New Beginnings. So check them out. And again, I want to thank you for being a part of today's broadcast. If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to www.church-redeemer.org slash newbeginnings.